0: first. There's your first Christmas Eve service that you lead, there's your first Easter sermon, and then there's your first Mother's Day sermon. And, and as crazy as it is, this is in fact my first Mother's Day sermon. Now I've preached on Mother's Day before, and we have acknowledged Mother's Day before, but I have a tendency of not preaching Mother's Day sermons and Father's Day sermons. But this is the first of of two sermons that we're going to get on parenting. We're going to get one today on Mother's Day. And we're going to get one on June the 20th, which is the second best day on the year. Because it's Father's Day, but it also is my daddy's birthday And sometime between today and then, if all goes according to plan, I'll be preaching my first Father's Day sermon as a father. But see, I I I haven't preached Mother's Day sermons. I don't preach Father's Day sermons because here's here's the thing that we may not want to talk about: Mother's Day, Father's Day, as wonderful as they are, they're commercial holidays. They aren't holidays on the church calendar. They aren't religious holidays. And while I I think it is right and good that we take days and set them aside to recognize and honor and remember our parents, Jesus never preached a Mother's Day sermon. Jesus never preached a Father's Day sermon. But Jesus did talk to us about parenting. Here's the other thing about Mother's Day and Father's Day. It can be, they can be hard for folks there are there are folks there are folks here who have lost their mothers. There are folks who have difficult relationships with their mothers. There are mothers who have difficult relationships with their children. There are folks that have experienced infertility and miscarriage. There are those who deeply desire to have children and haven't had the chance. Mother's Day can be hard for people. And the other thing is, is that Mother's Day sermons often fall into a a cliche. Have you ever heard the joke, you go to church on Mother's Day and you hear a sermon about how great mothers are, and then you go to a church on Father's Day and you hear how great mothers are? And so I have never wanted to fall into that. But here's the thing. We know from Scripture that family is important. Large chunks of, of Scripture deal with how we are to be family, how we are to, to act and conduct ourselves as family, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Family is, is a primary image that Scripture uses to describe the people of God. In fact, God chooses a family, the family of Abram, who will be renamed Abraham to be his people and to work through to redeem the world. Go back. Read in Genesis. Read the calling of Abram. He calls Abram, but he's using his family to do his work. We as the church, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're grafted into Abram's family. It's why at Vacation Bible School, we can sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, and that is enough of me singing. So family is a this, is this central important image. Family, family is key. Who remembers the, the 1991 movie classic, Hook? Hook is a, is a retelling of the Peter Pan story in which Peter Pan has left Neverland and, and come to our world and at this point is a burned out cynical adult played by Robin Williams who has, who has sort of forgotten that he was ever Peter Pan. And, and his old nemesis, Captain Hook, kidnaps his children. And he's got to remember who he is and get him back. And at the end of the movie, Peter has Hook right where he wants him. And as he's about to, to, to bring down the killing stroke and have his revenge, Peter's daughter Maggie stays his hand and says, don't worry about him he's just a mean old man without a mommy. His daughter Maggie's words echo a theme that's found throughout every Peter Pan story and through a lot of stories that somehow all of the heartache in the world can be fixed by a mother's love. You know, in the weeks... Leading up to the second Monday in May, we're surrounded by flowery cards with sappy sentiments about how wonderful our mothers are. Some of us probably gave some cards like that this morning, or received cards like that this morning. Sometimes in the church, we point to the example of the Proverbs 31 woman. Who gets up early, stays up late, and somehow manages to perfectly balance self care, motherhood, and a career. If there has ever been a woman who can actually fulfill the ideal of Proverbs 31, I want to meet her because it's insane. You know, but there are a lot of folks, there are a lot of women for whom this ideal looks nothing like their real lives. They see this ideal, they see this ideal held up and they want to chase after it and they want to follow it and they can't. And they can't get there, and that and that disconnect leaves them feeling broken and hopeless and like a failure. I don't know if any of you are familiar with mommy blogs and the mommy wars online. It's a thing that I didn't really know existed until relatively recently. And there's this whole group of people out there who think that it's their mission to tell other mothers how bad they are because they don't do things exactly the way the first group does them. Creates a lot of angst. Creates a lot of anxiety. But here's the thing. We see it in Scripture. And so today we're going to read two stories about two mothers We're going to read one in the book of Ruth. We're going to read one in the book of 1 Samuel about two mothers who don't have all of their stuff together. So we're going to start in the book of Ruth, the first verse of the first chapter, and then we'll flip over a couple of pages to 1 Samuel 1. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughter-in-laws set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, "'Each of you, go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband.' She kissed them, and they wept loudly. And they said to her, "'We insist on returning with you to your people.' But Naomi replied, "'Return home.' My daughters, why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. I'll turn over a couple of pages to the beginning of 1 Samuel. There are a few proper nouns in this passage that I'm not even going to attempt to read. I'm just going to use the first initial because these words... My tongue is not made to wrap them around these words. There was a man from Ar in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jerom, son of Elihu, son of Tehu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second, Piniah. Piniah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Pinea and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her In this way, Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why don't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, as we continue this time of worship this morning, as we begin to dive into your word and to study it, I would just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe may be seated. So how does God see the mom who doesn't have everything perfectly figured out? How does God see the mom whose laundry is a little overdue how does, mom, how does God see, see the mom whose who's, who's kids' toys are maybe a, a little too spread out in the living room? What is His heart toward mothers who are praying for children who've walked away from the faith? Does, does God hear the moms who are grieving children taken from life too soon, or the woman or the women who long to be mothers, but whose time has not come? The answer is this, God sees them as his daughters, and he loves them just as much as the mothers who externally appear to have it all together. You know, as we look through Scripture, we find myriad examples of mothers who are exalted. There is Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Timothy's mother and grandmother who Paul commends for having taught Timothy the faith. But we also find examples of mothers with struggles. Sarah and Elizabeth. Mothers who longed for children long into their golden years before their prayers were answered. And we see stories of Mothers celebrating and grieving and doing whatever they can to keep their children alive even in the midst of tyrannical decrees or famine. See the the mother of Moses keep him safe and place him in the reed basket on the hope that someone would find him and care for him. We see the the widow that Elijah meets in the midst of... Of a famine, who on faith lets this crazy man into the house, who happens to be a prophet of God, who provides for her and her son. You know, and as we as we looked at the book of Ruth, as we looked at the beginning of that story, what we found was a family, and indeed a nation that was in crisis. We're told that there was a famine in the land. And not only was there a famine that was affecting the entire region, but we also were told that it was during the time of the judges. It was during the time of the judges. It was a time when the people of Israel had forgotten God and had forgotten the work that He had done for them when He brought them out of Egypt into the land of promise. We're, we're reminded in Judges 2.10 that The whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. That's the generation that had come out of Egypt. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works He had done for Israel. This was a a family and a nation in crisis. Scripture doesn't tell us much, really anything, about Naomi's family before their move to Moab but it's clear from the kind of person that we see Naomi to be that to, it's safe to assume that she had done her best to care for them but but when she and her husband had to to go in search of food she didn't just leave her hometown she left her community she left her family any relationships that meant something to her in her life she left to to move, to immigrate to another country, to a, a foreign land with foreign language and foreign gods to provide for her family. And in the following 10 years, she meets grief after grief as this, as this family that had meant so much to her, this family that she had left everything to try and preserve, slipped through her fingers as first her husband and then her sons died. To me, one of the one of the saddest sentences in Scripture is found in verse 13. No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share. So this is, this is a woman that before the end of the first chapter, we we find her widowed and with her own widow and childless daughters-in-law scavenging for food. This is a woman who, despite her faith, and even despite having tried everything to help and serve her family, it seems as if she can't get it all together. And then a couple of pages over, we meet Hannah. Hannah is another woman. A woman like so many in Scripture who has a hard time conceiving children. And Hannah, Hannah has a problem that, that Sarah and Elizabeth don't have. Hannah has a husband who's married to another woman. And that woman will bear children. And so every day we're told that this other woman rubs Hannah's face in the fact that she hasn't had children. Now, it's important to remember, as we're talking about both of these families, the the family dynamics of these cultures. The family's dynamics of these cultures were such that, that if you were a woman who was married and you did not have children, you were not fulfilling your obligation. I want to be very, very clear. I'm talking about them, not me. You're living in a culture where if you don't have a man... To protect you. And we, we see more of this in the book of Ruth, right? And we see eventually in the book of Ruth and in the story of Ruth, them turning to Boaz because the, the relative who should be taking care of them, the male relative, the kinsman redeemer, who should be taking care of Naomi and Ruth, is not doing his thing because they live in a culture that if you don't have a man around to protect you, you are absolutely the most vulnerable person in society. Go back and read Ruth sometime and read some of the things that said in Ruth when when Naomi sends Ruth into the field to glean and tells her to stay away from the workers. And think about why a woman might tell another woman who's in a field with a bunch of men to stay away from the men. Because there was no kinsman redeemer to Protect them. And with Hannah, we have this story, this woman who she's married and we're told that her husband loves her and yet she can't have children and and her sister wife is rubbing her face in it and, and even her husband does this wonderful thing where he goes, what, am I not enough for you? Am I not better to you than ten sons? You know, men, let's be honest here for a second. There's a reason that sometimes the sermons get preached on Mother's Day how great mothers are, and the sermons get preached on Father's Day how great mothers are. Because sometimes we don't do a real good job. And sometimes we open our mouth and we say really stupid things like, aren't I better to you than ten sons? Dude, that's not the problem. have a little common sense so here in hannah's grief she's mocked here in in hannah's grief instead of finding support from her husband she was made to feel guilty for not being content a little while later in the story they they go to shiloh to to worship god and she enters and she's and she's before the altar and she's praying and she's pouring her heart out to God and Eli comes in and he sees her mouth moving but he hears nothing coming out and he accuses her of being drunk this is a woman that has no, has no comfort in her own home, has no comfort from her own husband, and even when she comes to God, the priest looks at her and accuses her of being drunk. Now, I will give Eli credit when she responds and she goes, I'm not drunk. He turns into not so terrible a guy after that. But we have here these stories of these, these two mothers, Naomi and Hannah, who want nothing more, who want nothing more than than to live into that rarefied ideal, to be the mom who has it together, to be able to sit down on Instagram and have the perfect family photo, to, to get onto the blog platform and have the, the perfect mommy blog about how great everything is and yet they can't get it done. Not because they have lack of will, but because sometimes in life your father-in-law and your husband die. Sometimes in life you just have trouble getting pregnant. And so we have these two women, Hannah and Naomi, who in the midst of all of this turn to God. These are two women who need love and support and care. And they find it in God, but they should have been able to find it in the community of God as well. And they didn't. You know, in these stories, we don't have examples of mistakes to avoid or disasters to prepare for. No. In these stories and throughout Scripture, God shows how much he cares for mothers. Throughout Scripture, God shows how much he cares for mothers. And he cares for them no matter how frantic or frazzled or embittered or desperate they may be or they may seem. In fact, not only does he care for them, we see in this, in the story of God in God's word, he centers them. He makes them important, central elements of the story. Without Naomi, Ruth does not come back to Israel. And without Ruth coming back to Israel, there is no Jesse. And without Jesse, there is no David. And without David, there is no Jesus Without Hannah coming to the temple and praying for Samuel for a child there is no prophet Samuel who anoints first Saul and then David without Sarah and without Sarah laughing at the idea that God would give her a child there would be no Isaac there would be no Jacob there would be no people of Israel. Without Mary to carry the Christ child, Jesus would never have been born. Without Timothy's mother and grandmother, Timothy doesn't learn the faith. Without Priscilla, Apollos doesn't have his heresy corrected. God centers mothers over And over and over again. And in showing this care that God has from others, in showing this care, God invites us to come alongside these struggling women, to help them lighten their burdens, to release them from unwarranted shame. As God God comes alongside, He's inviting us to do the same. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul has a whole, a whole thing where he's talking about households and how husbands and wives should interact with each other and how parents should interact with children and how children should interact with parents. But, but here's this thing, Paul tells husbands to make it a priority to show their love to their wives. He tells husbands to to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Christ sacrificed. Christ went to the cross for the church. Men, as much as your wives and the women in your life appreciate the flowers and the chocolate and the cards and the gifts and all of the other ways that you show them. Jesus didn't love the church by giving us a big box of chocolates. He loved the church by laying down his life for the church. So if you're a married. If you're a married man, look for areas where your wife is struggling to find balance in your life and find ways to support her, to come alongside her. If you're a dad, offer to take the kids and give her some time to do whatever it is that she wants. And maybe, sometimes, I've been told at least, that's a nap. There is this one thing that I absolutely hate. When you see men out with their own children, and someone says, Oh, are you babysitting today? No, he's parenting. Mothers are absolutely wonderful, but men, you're parents too. It's not babysitting to take care of your kids. It's doing your job. And sometimes, I'm told, I'll find out in a month, Mama needs a nap. Or a bath. Or just 30 minutes alone without little fingers coming under the bathroom door. We should be encouraging the women in our lives. We should be encouraging the mothers in our lives to pursue the things that give her joy. And we need to be praying for them. There is so much pressure put on mothers. And so my prayer is, is that you will see yourself as God sees you, as precious and as beloved and worth sacrificing everything for. Those of us who have mothers, especially if you are kids, so this is for you, Adeline, pay attention, or teenagers, it's for y'all in the back, I see you back there. Let's let's remember something. Let's remember that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. He was God in the flesh, walking on earth, the perfect, sinless human being. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He trusted his earthly parents. He honored his earthly parents. And he did what what they asked him to do. There's that, there's that wonderful story in Luke where, where at 12 they go to Jerusalem and, and Jesus finds a way to get left behind. And that utter panic that sets in when they are a day out. I mean, when Audrey got left at the church when she was a kid, she was only left at the church for like five or ten minutes. Jesus got left in Jerusalem for a a day, actually more, because you're a day out, it's a day back. And so they find him, and they find him there in the temple. And, And Luke tells us, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Is this not the most authentic, perfectly descriptive response that a mother would have why are you treating me like this worried sick why were you searching for me he asked them didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house but they did not understand what he said to them and he went down with them and came to nazareth and was obedient to them His mother kept all these things in her heart. A mother's heart is full of all sorts of things that she has kept over the years. I think if Jesus can honor his earthly father and mother, we can honor our earthly fathers and mother, right? Finally, as Paul writes in Colossians, As members of the body of Christ, it is our privilege and our responsibility to support the women in our lives, both as mothers and as sisters in Christ. It is our privilege and our responsibility to support the women in our lives, both as mothers and as sisters in Christ. Colossians 3, Paul writes this, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly beloved, put on compassion... Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. We're called to support love. compassion, kindness, humility. If you know a mother or a mother-in-waiting who is struggling, look for ways that you can befriend her. You know, have women in your lives in, at home, at, at, at work, in the community. Find a way to be supportive other than simply offering kind words and a promise of prayer. Those things, are, those things can be wonderful but sometimes the the tangible is important as well when we see the the mother in the parking lot struggling to get the kids and the groceries and everything else in the car and the and the and the the, the shopping cart starts rolling off grab the shopping cart when the mother leaves the shopping cart in the in the parking spot next to her and just gets in the car, don't think ugly things about this is how civilization collapses. Which is my normal thought. Just grab the cart and put it up. We don't know what people are facing. See, because when we come known for our care and our support of those in our midst, we become a safe place where others can come and share their needs and ask for help. When we come to be known for our care and our support, and isn't that what we as a church are supposed to be known for? the statistics that we have, the demographics that we have for our immediate area tells us something. One of the things that it tells us is it tells us that there is a disproportionately high number of single mothers living amongst us. So there's a a high number of single mothers in general. But in our area, in the immediate surroundings of our fellowship, there is a disproportionately high number of single mothers. There is also a disproportionately high number of single fathers in our area. What are we doing to serve them? What are we doing to help the Naomis and the Hannahs that live amongst us? What are we doing to help lighten their load. These are some things that I have seen other churches do that maybe we could consider. A car ministry, where once a quarter, people who need help with their cars can come and have some basic maintenance done and have somebody check over the car to see if it needs something else done to it a handyman ministry to, to come in and help do things like fix that switch that's been broken for three or four months that I swear I'm going to get to one of these days but the kids have got to get to ball practice and I've got to get to work and it just never gets done. Or or helping a single mom who, who needs to help get the mo- lawn mowed. There's also ministries like, like Mops, Mothers of Preschoolers, or, or Mother's Day Out, where, where women in the community can come and can bring their children and for three or four hours can go and go to the doctor's appointment that she needs to have without having to bring the kid with her. Or, here's a concept, go grocery shopping without little hands pulling every bright, shiny thing off the shelf. There are all sorts of things that maybe we could do as a church, to support the, the Hannahs and the Naomis in our midst. You can see, families are how God has chosen to work in our world. Families are how God has chosen to work. He proclaimed that it was Abram's family that he would use to redeem the world. He sent his son, to live in a family. He proclaims that we as the church are a family. It's the family, not the individual. It's the, the base unit of the kingdom of God. And none of this, none of this are we intended to do on our own. All of this we are intended to do with love and support and family around us. And sometimes that family is biological and we give thanks for that. And sometimes that family is the church. Motherhood is not a road that's meant to be walked alone. We as the church have the privilege, and it is a privilege, and the responsibility to come alongside mothers and women who long to be mothers to encourage and to lift up and to offer physical help as needed. There were these two women who were living at about the same time. And one was named Naomi. And she she had two sons and a husband. Who died. And her life fell apart. But she had a daughter-in-law who said, Wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and my God will be your God. She had someone to come alongside her and to support her. And at the same time, as Naomi and Ruth were making their way back to Israel. There was this woman named, named Hannah who desperately wanted a child, who couldn't find the love and the care and the support that she, was, that she deserved at home. And so she found it at the foot of God. And without these two women, we wouldn't be here this morning. Without these two mothers who weren't perfect, whose family wasn't Instagrammable, whose life was not bloggable, who would have lost the mommy war. But because people came alongside them, and loved them, and supported them, and saw their value, even in the mess, they become central to God's story. Central to our story, and the story of our family. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 416, My Faith